So they used to do this thing in England before Christianity ever arrived. Every spring, all the villagers in a given community would march around the boundaries of that village. They would mark out where the boundaries lay between their fields and pastures and the fields and pastures of their neighboring villages. It was called going a-ganging or beating the bounds. And when Christianity arrived in England, it took over this ancient custom and eventually assigned it to a particular day in the liturgical calendar, the Sunday before Ascension Day. That day, every spring, when a priest of a village would lead a procession on Rogation Sunday, both to trace the boundaries of a parish. This is before maps, right? So this yearly ritual was kind of like the only mechanism available for passing down ancient wisdom. And in fact, the, the tradition was that the adult members of a Rogation Day procession would sometimes violently like bump their children against the boundary stones so that their kids would always remember where the boundaries were. They had the scars to prove it. That's how knowledge was passed down in the ancient world, right? You, you kept it in your body, it was in your muscle memory. Along the way, the priests and the choir would chant psalms, they would sing hymns of praise to the creator of the world, they would thank God for God's blessing, pray God's favor on the planting and the harvest to come. It was a way of acknowledging that everything they passed, right, all things bright and beautiful, to echo the phrase of the hymn we just sang, all things bright and beautiful, as well as the harder and the sadder things, all things belong to the God who made them. So today is Rogation Sunday, although we're not beating anything around here, neither children's heads nor the boundaries of our fields. But we are singing. We're singing the, the old Rogation hymns this morning, the spacious firmament on high, all things bright and beautiful. And it's, it's not hard or onerous to sing about the beautiful parts of God's creation on a glorious spring day like it is today in Portland. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. That's, those are Cecil Alexander's words. She wrote them for Sunday school children in the mid-19th century. She was a, uh, an Irish Anglican bishop's wife with a pretty deterministic view of God's creation. There is a verse of this hymn that we don't sing anymore. She wrote, the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. She was a high church Anglican of the traditional school. The world is structured the way it is because God made it that way. That included the social order. Some were born high, according to her thinking. Some were born low. Cecil Alexander thought God had designed it that way. Because when the world is ordered in the way that we like it to be, it is easy to ascribe that ordering to a divine creator. It's easy to praise the God of the purple-headed mountain and the sunset and the morning and the greenwood standing by. The heavens declare the glory of God, right? That's what the psalmist wrote. Same idea that Paul is presenting to the citizens of Athens in his sermon at the Areopagus that we just read from the book of Acts. Paul says, the God who made the entire world, the cosmos, and everything in it, Paul says, the one who is Lord of heaven and earth, that God does not live in shrines made by human hands. From one ancestor, God made all the nations to inhabit the whole earth. He spread them all over the globe. He arranged this natural world so that 
people would search for God in it, that they would grope for God, he says, maybe find God in the order of the created universe. That's, that's kind of like Paul's first century version of a religious anthropology, the, the, this pagan world of sacred shrines, gods that are made of wood and stone, a world that worships the divine pantheon in trees and groves and rivers and mountains. That way of seeking and finding and often worshiping God in creation that way is not wrong, Paul says. I mean, sometimes maybe he thinks it's a little bit misguided as far as his tradition is concerned. It's a departure from the strict monotheism that his native Judaism claims. But Paul is willing to engage that way of being in the world up to a point. He tells the Athenians, some of your own poets, your own artists, your musicians, so far removed from the revelation of the God of Israel, some of them have stumbled upon this creating God as it were, inadvertently, right? Through the majesty and the beauty and the splendor of the world that God has made. Creativity is a pathway to the creator. We sometimes say that at Trinity about the arts and music, the deep beauty that we hold so dear in this community. So, so finding God in, in beauty, in majesty, that's not hard, right? That's actually where Paul begins his message to the city of Athens. Look at this world, he says. It's, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. The, the fact that you're alive and breathing on a Sunday morning, the fact that there is something and not just nothing in the universe, all of this speaks, according to Paul, all of this speaks of a divinity that shapes our ends. All things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God, Paul says, the Lord God made them all. But what about the stuff that's not bright and beautiful? Is the creating God responsible for that stuff too? I mean, this isn't just personal preference, right? I prefer kittens, you prefer snakes. But all God's critters got a place in the choir. We know that. But what about the harder stuff? I think that's a theological question that some of us are wrestling with right now. Is God the God who is responsible for sunsets and mountains, is that same God also responsible for viruses? If we praise God for all things bright and beautiful, must we also praise that same creator for all things dire and diabolical? One classic answer to that is to say that viruses and diseases and illness, all of that is a result of the fall. It's a result of human depravity, human sin. It's not a part of the divine creation, the way God set it up. That's at least what the famous 20th century theologian Karl Barth thought. He was in the hospital with a bacterial infection that would eventually take his life. And Barth says, God makes no mistakes. So clearly, God cannot have been responsible for the bacteria that was trying to do him in. So for Barth, the only thing to do was to treat the infection the way that God treats sin. Barth says, you despise it, you combat it, and you suppress it. That's one answer. A couple of years ago, when the Ebola virus was decimating whole communities in sub-Saharan Africa, there was a, a microbiologist who actually worked for the World Health Organization at the time. She also happened to be an evangelical Christian, and she was asked by a journalist how she understood God's role in the tragedy of a viral outbreak. She said, I used to think that viruses originated as defunct cellular machinery and that defunct cellular machinery was a product of disease and disease was a result of the fall. But she says, I don't, I don't think that way anymore. She went on to say, I think that's a really bad theological position. I also think it's a really bad scientific position. So in this article, the microbiologist goes on to explain 
the way that a virus is designed to work, it attaches itself to a single cell organism, like a bacterium, basically explodes it, right? Releases all the organic materials that bacteria make and spreads them all over creation. And viruses are everywhere, right? I mean, there's estimated to be 10 million more viruses in, on Earth than there are stars in the universe, right? They are thought to be some of the most abundant microbes on our planet. So viruses, right? Even the, the scary coronaviruses like COVID-19, those are not, like, they're not the outliers in the system, at least not as far as biology is concerned, right? They're not evil. They're not kinks in a system. They're not the mistakes. They are the system, right? This microbiologist described virus, actually, as like the basic mechanism of life on Earth, right? The means by which the universe breaks down cellular material so that it can be spread out. Viruses, she said, are kind of, you could say, what creates the conditions for life. No viruses, no human life. So the only place, she says, it really makes sense to talk about sin in that system is actually when human beings begin to interfere with that system, right? Our, our mismanagement of the environment sometimes certainly puts us at risk for contracting stuff like COVID-19. That's not about a, a god sending a plague to punish humanity, as some people in the world are suggesting right now, including some members of the White House task force, I think rather unwisely. But that's just the, that's just the natural consequence of human behavior, right? The created order itself, the system that God sets in place, if you want to get theistic about it. That system is not the problem. It's not evil. That system is actually kind of amazing. I mean, from, a, from this particular microbiologist's perspective, as a committed Christian, the wonder of the created order of bacteria and viruses reveals the care of the one who made it. It's actually not unlike Paul's argument to the Athenians, updated for a, a slightly more scientific understanding of the world. You can search for the creator in the beauty all things bright and beautiful, purple-headed mountains, and so forth. You can also search for the Creator in the study of microbiology. You can choose to see the fingerprints of divinity in the working of scary stuff, like bacteria and viruses. Nobody's written a hymn about that stuff yet. We're just, I guess, waiting for that one. But if we're going to sing praises to God for the beautiful things, shouldn't we also learn to praise God for the ugly things? I mean, if I can lift my theological gaze to the spacious firmament on high, shouldn't I also be able to lower my gaze into the electron microscope? What that discipline asks of me is to take a step away from my limited, sometimes selfish view of the world and learn to deal with my finitude. It asks me to consider that I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna die someday and that there's nothing wrong about that. The universe that God has set up needs my body to do that in order to release all this stuff back in the sandbox so that human life can continue. Jesus knew something like that, a sort of pre-microbiological way. In John's Gospel, Jesus tells his disciples, very truly I tell you, unless a seed of wheat, a grain of wheat, falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. When it dies, it bears a lot of fruit. That's theological. That's also pre-scientific in a certain way. Everything belongs to God, right? The living and the dying, the bacteria and the virus, the sunsets and the mountains and the microscopes. That's why our ancient ancestors 
processed around their village on this Sunday, so many hundreds of years ago, marking out the boundaries of what was known, stubbing their kids' toes against the stones that marked out their understanding, so that their children and their children's children would not forget the stuff that they knew. We pass down the best of what we know. We stub our kids' toes up against it. We mark off the limits of our understanding, the boundaries of our knowledge. And when we do that, we actually do begin to see how, how little we actually know about this world, how small our boundaries are, how limited our place, and how vast the forests and the fields that lie beyond us are. And all of that is God's. All of it belongs to God. That's, that's really what I think the practice of beating the bounds is about. It's not, it's just, not just claiming your territory, right? It's about saying, this is God's, this is God's, this is God's, all of it, is, it belongs to God, and all of it is worth giving thanks for, as long as it is ours to steward. We've got all of these, you know, we've all got our fields, right? Or maybe they're literal fields, maybe you've got a property somewhere, or maybe you're working in some metaphorical field, right? The boundaries that outline my place in the world, the stuff that I study, the disciplines I engage, the stuff that I think I know, the families that we care about, the jobs we do, the neighbors and neighbor, neighborhoods that we live in, and all of that are God's fields. There are no mistakes in God's fields. There's no ancient curse that's being worked out here. There's no angry God sending down vengeance on a recalcitrant people and punishing them with a virus to make them pay. There is sadness. There is grief. And there is joy. There is celebration. And all of that, the good and the bad, the wheel and the woe, as the ancients said, the mountains and the microbes, all of it is buzzing and vibrating and singing with the energy of the creator who makes it and takes out of love. This world is a marvelous place. I mean, life is a, is a pretty incredible thing. And all of it, the fullness of our entire experience, all of it is worthy of